Thank you all. Um, if I asked you what you believe is the most important question ever posed, what question would you respond with? Think about that for a second. If I asked you what question you believe is the most important question that has ever been posed, what would come to mind for you? I'm sure there'd be a little bit of a debate over this. There are a lot of important questions out there, but there is one question in particular that it would be an understatement to say, or it would not be an understatement to say rather, that it is um, a matter of life or death. Life literally depends on this question. This is a question that was being asked 2,000 years ago and it's a question that is still being asked today. Thing is, we have the answer to that question. So it's all the more important to know what the question is and how to answer it with confidence and also with clarity. This question will reveal itself when we get into the passage this morning. And so I'm gonna ask that you would turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible with you and you want to have a physical Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. That is yours if you so desire to take that. Um, otherwise, if you're not familiar with the Bible and where Acts may be located, you can use the table of contents at the beginning or um, you can just know that if you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we get into the book of Acts. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Last week, Bob led us through uh, chapter 14 and he showed us that Paul and Barnabas, they have been going and strengthening churches, planting churches, strengthening these churches, and they have just returned from their first missionary journey to Antioch, and they've, they've shared with this church all that God has done with them um, to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles, anybody who is not an Israelite, anybody who is not of the Israelite descent, and so God has been saving the Gentiles through Paul and Barnabas and their ministry, and the church is celebrating that. And you'd think that there would be extended celebration with everybody who would hear it. But, and that's actually how the chapter begins, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's, there's this cause for celebration. Gentiles are being saved. People, like the kingdom of God is expanding and they come and they say, well, unless these Gentiles receive the mark of circumcision, unless they follow the law of Moses, it doesn't count. Womp, womp. What a buzzkill. I mean, honestly, there is cause for celebration. They come in and say, nope, doesn't count. These men, they were Judaizers, which was a group of individuals who were, they were zealous for the Old Testament law and they believed that anyone who wanted to be saved and know God must first convert to, to Judaism. And specifically, they say that in order to be saved, they must be circumcised, which again is a physical mark of God's covenant people given in the law. We see that in Genesis chapter 17. So you can understand a little bit of where they're coming from. They, this is what they know. Like if, if I'm of God's people... I have the mark of circumcision. So naturally, if they're saying, well, they're gonna be part of God's people, they must also receive the mark of circumcision. And you can imagine why this is such a big deal. Gentiles are being saved. Nope, doesn't count. Right? There's a tension here. And so naturally, Paul and Barnabas respond in verse two. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas um, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we see here that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with the Judaizers over their bold claim. Now, when you hear the word debate, you're, it's going to cause you probably to do one of two things. You're going to have one of two reactions. Some of you hear that and you're like, yeah, I love me a good debate. Let's bring it on, right? You have this, you love debate, you love arguing, these type of things. Um, but then on the other hand, you might be turned off by this. You hear the word debate and it's a complete turnoff and you say, why do we have to argue? Why can't we just simply agree to disagree? It's okay with believing different things. It doesn't hurt anyone. All right, usually these are the two types of responses. And to that first group who loves to debate, oftentimes pride is at the center of that love for debate. This camp loves being right more than lovingly proclaiming what is right. And there is a distinction between those two things, yes. To the second camp, I would say that yes, sometimes it absolutely is okay to believe different things than other people. But there are certain matters that are non-negotiable. There are certain matters that cannot be let go. This is especially true in a situation like this when the church, it's growing and false teaching is directly challenging what is being taught. There are really only two main takeaways from this morning and they're simple statements, yet they have depth to them. And they form a thread that kind of flows through this passage and they will be unpacked more as we go. But the first is simply theology matters. Doctrine matters. What we believe matters. Now theology is a term that um, tends also to turn us off or even intimidate us, but doesn't need to. The term theology, it just means a word about God or the study of God. We all have a theology. Every single individual, whether you were in the church or outside the church, has a theology of sorts. Even the most devout atheist has a word or a thought about God. They have a theology. So we all have this understanding and belief of who God is. And it's important because it affects the way that we live. Theology matters, what we believe about God matters because this belief informs how we think, how we act, how we feel, how we live, and how we interact with others. And this is especially true when it comes to salvation, which is what this is all about. These Judaizers, they traveled hundreds of miles to Antioch to confirm or to confront the church about it. And we see others making their presence known in Jerusalem in verse 5. Right? But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, referring to the Judaizers, that's actually a key point here. These are believers. These are people who have trusted in Jesus. They're saying, 
that it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so this is where a big question comes from. The most important question that has ever been posed is at the center of this conflict. What must someone do to be saved? The most important question ever posed, what must someone do to be saved? If someone wants to get right with God and spend eternity with him, what do they have to do? So as a people who look back to the cross and have the fullness of God's revealed word, this seems like something that would be solved pretty simply and quickly. But it's important to remember that this is a whole new ordeal for them. That with salvation coming to the Gentiles, this kind of rocks the boat. This is something new for them. And so knowing that this was new and it carried massive implications for the church, they exemplified good practice for us. You see, there was a disagreement. There was a conflict in the church, which you know that there are disagreements and conflicts within the church, right? Like we can laugh about it because I mean, it's not good, but at the same time, this is normal. Whenever, wherever sin is present, and by the way, we all struggle with the sin nature, there will be conflict. There will be disagreement. The question is, what do we then do with that conflict? What do we do with that disagreement? But there was a disagreement with them. How do they respond? They gathered together with like-minded believers and those with authority in the church to seek wisdom on how to move forward. And we're gonna see later how God uses this conflict because that's what God does in his faithfulness. He uses conflict for his glory and the building up of the church. We're gonna see later how he does that here. And so they sought to answer the question, what must someone do to be saved? How would you answer that question? If that question was posed to you right now by somebody, hey, um, how, um, how can I be saved? How would you answer that question? We need to be able to answer this question. This is a question that is being asked still today. And when it's not being asked, the answer is often wrongly assumed. And so we must know how to answer this, but let's see how they did first. Picking up in verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word um, of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. We're gonna stop there for a moment. So after some time passes, right, there's some debate that's going on, Peter finally stands up and says, all right, let me, let me spit some facts here. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me lay it out for you. I've heard enough. We're not really getting anywhere. And he's going to be the first of four witnesses that we see in this, um, in this debate, in this conflict that will come up and speak. And so he speaks and he, he lays out several pieces of evidence. 
First, he says, you know, so he's reminding them something that they already know. He says, you know that in the early days, this would have been about 10 years or so, like a long time has passed since the events of Acts chapter 10 that he's referring to. He said, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He says, all the way back in Acts 10, hey, remember that thing with Cornelius? Yeah, that was, God in his sovereignty chose me to go out and do that. God in his sovereignty, this was his plan. We didn't make this up and we were told to preach the gospel and guess what? They believed. Well, how do we know that they believed? Well, because they received the Holy Spirit. And, and I love, he points out God who knows the heart. In other words, this wasn't fake. This was genuine. God who knows the heart gave them the Holy Spirit. Can God be tricked? No. So they received the Holy Spirit, and not only did they receive the Holy Spirit, but in the same manner in which they received it, the Jews received in Acts 2. So he's saying, not only did they receive the Holy Spirit, God who knows the heart, counted their salvation as genuine, but the fact that they have the Holy Spirit is evidence of that, and there's no partiality. There's no distinction between us and the Gentiles, in the same way we have been saved, their hearts have been cleansed, and here it is, by faith. Not because they received circumcision, God did not make them obey the law beforehand. It was by faith that they were saved. So Peter lays out these evidences, and he goes on then in verse 10, he says, now therefore, in light of this evidence, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. He says, look, have you been ever, ever been able to obey this law perfectly? No. Have our fathers, have our ancestors ever been able to obey this law perfectly? No. And he refers to it as a yoke. This was a, um, a device that would go over oxen in the agricultural fields to, to make sure that the lines are straight and they would train up these younger oxen to do so. But it was, it, was, it, was, it was a painful device, I would imagine. I've never had one on top of me, but it was a burden. The bottom line is it was a burden. He says, why are you placing this yoke upon the people that you yourselves have never been able to bear, neither have our fathers. And then he says, but, and it's interesting how he says this. He doesn't say that they will receive the grace or they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as we have. Like he would be almost like a sense of entitlement knowing that the gospel first goes to the Jews. He flips it around and says, actually, we believe that we will be saved just as they will. And so he turns it around. And so what that does is it silences the crowd. We see in verse 12, the assembly fell silent, but in those moments of silence then, Paul and Barnabas then step up as our second set of witnesses. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so we see here um, that Paul and Barnabas continue on this trend. They're agreeing with Peter. They're echoing what Peter is saying, that the salvation is coming to the Gentiles. And this is actually the fourth time, third time in this chapter, but the fourth time going back to the end of chapter 14, 
that we see that Paul and Barnabas are sharing all that God has done. There's a theme with them. They're sharing a testimony of all that God has been doing through them, specifically how he's been saving the Gentiles. And so he's echoing Peter's words. And so then we are introduced to our third witness in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied. James, this is the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. This James is the same James who wrote the letter James farther along in the New Testament. So James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is in reference to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Now he introduces our fourth witness, which is God's word, scripture itself. Just as it is written, and he quotes Amos, and he says, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. And so James comes in and he once again agrees with Peter. He says, this is the witness, right? Uh, We agree all that Peter, he's relayed that to us. We've witnessed it ourselves. And now this prophecy that Amos has prophesied, this too is also coming to pass. This future prophecy, this thing that God is saying that he will do, it it aligns right along with what he's doing right now. And so we have all these witnesses declaring what it is that God is doing and these evidences that are brought forth. And in light of all the evidences presented by these four witnesses, James then makes his judgment. He says in verse 19, therefore, in light of all of this, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So he says, here's my judgment. Their salvation is legit. It's genuine. There's not really much debate about that. He goes, but moving on, we should still write to them, Um, And the first thing we want to note here is that he says we need to not, um, we shouldn't trouble them. And that word trouble is actually a funny word. It has this idea of if you're walking a path and someone troubles you, it's the idea that they're throwing something in your path to annoy you. So he says, don't trouble them. Don't put anything unnecessary in their path. Don't give them any unnecessary burden. There is no extra requirements for salvation. Their salvation is genuine. He says, instead, here's what we write to them. He says that there are certain practices that they should avoid. Avoid eating meat offered to idols in, in, uh, at the altar. Abstain from sexual immorality and abstain from eating food that has been strangled or that had blood in it. That's weird. Like, what does that have to do with anything? There are two reasons, two, yes, this is good. Pastor doesn't know how to do math. Um, two reasons that he gives us this charge, he gives them this charge. First and foremost, he says that, well, 
in verse 21 that Moses, referring to, he's referring to the Jews here, that the Jews, the synagogues, like there are synagogues present in, in almost every city. So in other words, Gentiles, when these, these Gentiles who come to know Jesus are going out into the cities, um, they will um, come face to face with Jews who still um, will adhere to some of the Old Testament law. And so the first thing that they write says, hey, look, Gentiles, abstain from some of these practices to not offend the Jews. Don't offend the Jews. All of these things go um, against the Old Testament law, whether it's dietary restrictions or idol worship, um, sexual immorality. Often that was um, the sexual immorality that we're talking about are orgies and different sexual practices that would often take place in temples to be used as worship. It says abstain from all of these things because they're repulsive to the Jews. But of course, the other hand is don't do them because they might also cause you to fall back into your old life. These Gentiles often, often would come through these idolatrous practices. And so the twofold purpose of giving this charge is don't offend the Jews, but also don't put stumbling blocks in your own way so that you would fall back into your old patterns of sin. And as an aside, I think that we would do well since obviously these things really don't have much uh, effect on us in terms of our practices, so to speak, but we would do well to know what our stumbling blocks are. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, it would make sense for us to know what are those things that tempt us to fall back into our old sinful lives. We wanna know what those things are. The conclusion that this council came to is that the gospel has no and needs no addition. That's our second takeaway. The answer to our big question is faith. What must someone do to be saved? Put your faith in Jesus. Believe in your heart that he is who he says he is and that he has done exactly what he says he has done. And they reach this conclusion based on the evidence of God's word and their experience validated by God's word. It was their testimony What's important to note here is they didn't, they didn't sit around sharing their opinions and feelings. They didn't say, I believe this because I have experienced this. They looked at what God has said and they looked at what God has done. And the only thing, when they talk about their experience, their experience wasn't just simply their experience, it was validated by God's word. It was consistent with God's word. So, you might think that the answer to what we must do to be saved would be a closed case from this point forward, but it clearly wasn't. The question is still being asked today, whether explicitly or implicitly. And Paul spends virtually the entirety of Galatians focusing on this very issue, which would have taken place not long after this. And I want you to see this thread in Galatians because it shows us the clarity and the consistency in God's word. And it shows us the importance of how we answer this question and the major practical implications that it comes with. And so in the book of Galatians, he doesn't mince words as he kicks things off. He says in verse six to the churches of Galatia, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says, there is no other gospel. You have abandoned what you have been taught. Whoever has been teaching you these things, he gives them a mark of judgment. Like, let them be accursed. He goes, even if we were to come back to you and, and preach a different gospel, don't believe it. Even if an angel, a messenger would come to you and preach this gospel, this different gospel, let them be accursed. Said so that there is no other gospel. He goes on to build up his credibility with them again because it's been harmed. And he goes on to explain more about what he's saying. And so naturally, there are some questions that may come up because they're dealing with the same issues as we um, see in Acts chapter 15. We must, should we obey the law? We have to uh, accept circumcision. And so naturally, questions are gonna come up then about the law, about the Old Testament law and our relationship to it. And so he clearly explains this in more detail in chapter three. Verse 23, he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So you see what he's saying here. Actually, if you didn't see the theme, they're all underlined. Faith, 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 faith. Five times in these couple verses, he says, what is the answer? Faith. He's telling them we are no longer under the law. The law was not bad, but it was insufficient. It was insufficient. The law was there for a time. It was a, it was a guardian he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Why? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What requires, what is required to be saved? Faith. To believe that salvation comes by any other means, particularly by adhering to any um, sort of law, it bears major implications. And Paul goes on in chapter five to explain these implications. He says in verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's that phrase again. Same thing. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to, to every man who accepts circumcision, he's talking about accepts circumcision as a means of salvation, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So once again, he says, we have been set free from the burden, the yoke of any um, need or requirement to adhere to a law. He says, you have been set free from this. And, he, and this is the important part. He says, if you accept circumcision, if you choose into this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What he's saying is if we have to have any requirement outside of faith in Jesus to be saved, what was the purpose of the cross? 
That's what he's saying. The cross becomes void if we feel like it's the cross plus anything else. So he says, it's not about circumcision, it's not about uncircumcision, but only faith working through love. Today there are two great deceptions when it comes to salvation. The first is that there is no salvation, or perhaps that there's no need for salvation. The second is belief, any means of salvation apart from faith in Jesus. And as far as the second deception goes, it's, it's highly unlikely that you're going to come across anyone today seeing, seeking to obey the Old Testament per law perfectly to be saved. That's probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to come across too many people that would say that. But you will hear something like, yeah, I'm just trying to be good. I'm just trying to do good. I'm just trying to, you know, when I stand before the Lord, my good outweighs my bad. I've lived a good life. Right? It's really more about being better than the worst than anything else. You will hear stuff like that. People today may not adhere to the law that we refer to in the Old Testament, but a law of their own that they believe that they must follow to be right with God. But the problem Paul presents in Galatians 5 remains. Good isn't good enough. God requires perfection. And his, his argument is if you're going to be good here, or, or maybe if you're going to be perfect here in this area, you must be perfect across the board. It's not possible. But even if it was possible to keep your own standard of perfection, the problem then becomes it's your standard of perfection, which will always infinitely fall short of God's standard of perfection. This is hopeless. This is bad news. But we have the good news. In a world that's seeking to be good enough in order to be accepted by God, we have good news. This is what Paul writes in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you understand what this means? We don't need to do good and be good to get, and to get cleaned up in order to be accepted by God. The good news is that while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. He does the cleaning up that we cannot do for ourselves. That is the good news. So what must someone do to be saved? Put your faith in Jesus. This is why theology matters. Understanding that the gospel has no and needs no addition. It impacts key aspects of our life now. It affects our pursuit of salvation 
It affects our ongoing relationship with Jesus and it affects how we portray the gospel to others. And I want to portray um, or I want to present these implications in question form. The first and foremost important question that we must ask ourselves, have I placed my faith in Jesus alone? Do I believe that Jesus is enough? I believe that the majority of this room would say yes, I have placed my faith in Jesus. I do believe that he is enough, but I, I will never assume that is true for everyone here this morning. And I wanna remind you of, again, Romans 5, because wherever you're at, if that is you, if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, you have some type of standard that you're trying to live to. And I wanna tell you, you won't meet that standard. And, and even if you do, it still falls short of God's standard. God requires perfection, not good enough. If that is you this morning, if you have been striving, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. You no longer need to have this burden, this yoke upon you. You can find rest in me, right? While you are weak, you don't have to clean yourself up. You can't. We all know we've got stuff wrong with us. We feel that. You don't have to clean yourself up, not that you can anyway, while you were still weak, while you were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us, Christ died for you. You might, believe, you might have grown up in the church believing that. You might have heard that and saying, yep, I believe that. Guess what, James 2 says that even the demons believe and they shudder. If you believe it right here, but it's not gone right here, you're not saved. We believe it in our heads, but it needs to be in our hearts. It needs to cause us to turn from this life of sin and turn to Jesus and submit and surrender ourselves to him. So will you take it from here and bring it down to here? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter six, today is the day of salvation. That can be true of you even now. All you've gotta do is submit yourself to him. Give yourself over to him. And again, for the majority of this room, you'd answer yes here. But in light of my salvation, the next question I ask is, am I walking in freedom? Galatians 5, once again, says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in light of the fact that we have been set free. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is writing to believers in Galatians. He says, you have been saved. You have come to know this truth. Why are you submitting again? Why are you taking this yoke that was taken off of you by Jesus and willingly putting it back on? He says, do not submit again to this yoke of slavery. And he's writing again to the followers of Jesus. So here's what this looks like. You have laid down your striving. You've accepted Jesus. But somewhere along the way, you have placed that yoke right back on yourself. You wouldn't say that you need to work for salvation, but you live the Christian life as if you need to work to keep it. I must do this or that in order to keep God's favor. And when we do this, we seek to place the chains back on us that Christ has freed us from. Everyone's gonna come away from this morning with something different, so perhaps this will be the sticking point for some, but you need to hear this. 
Nothing that you do can make God love you more. And nothing that you do can make God love you less. Speaking to the followers of Jesus, nothing you do is gonna make God love you more. You're not gonna perform for him and he's gonna be like, yep, I love them this much more today. And nothing you do or don't do is going to make him love you less. Live for him because you love him, not because you want to get love from him. You already have it. The last question is a subtle one, but it's, that's why we're talking about it. Am I portraying the true gospel? Followers of Jesus, are we portraying the true gospel? If we are not careful in our interactions with those who do not know Jesus, we can unintentionally preach a different gospel and fall into the same deception as these Judaizers. Once again, what does Romans 5 say? That while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. This is God's word. So naturally we would say, yep, we believe this. But sometimes our words and our actions haven't caught up with what we say we believe. How often when talking with someone who doesn't know Jesus, instead of leading with Jesus, we move to condemn their lifestyle first. It often comes from a place of genuine care and concern for them, but what ends up happening is we focus on telling them to stop doing what they're doing. Hey, stop the partying, that's not good for you. Watch your mouth, stop your cussing. Stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. All right, it's not honoring to the Lord. It isn't pleasing to the Lord. It isn't honoring to God, that's true. But when I didn't know Jesus in college and I partied in college, you think that I cared what God thought? No, I couldn't. I didn't know him. I didn't care what he thought. A sinner is going to sin. We cannot expect someone enslaved to their sin to stop indulging that sin apart from Jesus. But that's so often how we approach it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter five, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? What have I to do with holding those outside the church to the church's standards? He says, we're to judge those inside the church. If we believe in Romans five, why do we often approach people as if they need to clean up first? The true gospel isn't come um, clean up and then come to Jesus, but come to Jesus to be cleaned up. That is the true gospel. It's not, you need to do this, you need to get right, you need to stop doing this, and then there were a whole mess of things that I was doing that I saw as sin after I came to Jesus. I, I didn't wanna do these things anymore, but I still struggled after that. Like, I came to him dirty because he came to me to wash me. Amen. But that order is important. The more that we know Jesus, the uglier our sin looks. But apart from Jesus, we treat our sin as our salvation. Apart from him, we treat it as our salvation. We indulge the things that we believe fulfills our purpose because that's all we know. It's all that I knew. So instead of leading with behavior modification, we can show them that what Jesus offers us is so much better. Hey, that thing, 
that's not good for you. That's harmful to you. And I got to tell you that Jesus, what he has to offer, it is so much better than what you are indulging in. He has life for you. And when they put their faith and trust in Jesus, then the heart change follows. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Share the true gospel that we know. Now, however you answer these questions, there's grace for you, right? If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, again, today is the day of salvation. There's grace for you. Am I walking in freedom? If you've been walking with this burden, this yoke, there's grace for you. You can just simply take off the chains. His love for you has not changed. And if you have not been portraying the true gospel, once again, there is, there is grace for you. We all need to grow in our faith in the way that we portray him. Theology matters. That's why we come together like this, to be sharpened by God's word. And the question becomes, how then will we live this out today? Let's pray. God, you are a good God. And we recognize that this grace that you have given, it, it, it comes from you and that it is a free gift that you have offered. There is nothing that we have done, there's nothing that we could possibly do to earn your favor and be, and be right with you. But Lord, while we were still enemies, while we were dirty and unclean, you came to us. I ask, Lord, that that truth would sink into the heart of each individual here this morning, whether they're hearing it for the first time or believing it for the first time, or it's the 1500th time. Would your spirit reveal um, something that, that we need to know this morning in our own lives? We give all of it to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.